Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 452 is recorded live June 18th, 2020. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where we're inching our way to opening up. Gosh, there's so many ways you can interpret that. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? So far, so good. And we also have a special guest this week. We have Dave Tonneman. How are you doing today, Dave? Oh, I woke up this morning looking down at the dirt instead of up at the sky, so... Uh... Great. Well, as long as you're above the dirt, not in it, that's uh, that's not too bad a way. Yes, sir. And I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. I have a, a full chat room. Usually the problem with the summer is it gets nice so late uh, that uh, we, we, we miss a lot of people. They, they, they just get caught in the nice, long, early summer days and, and miss out. But uh, we have Derek and Eric just popped in and Karen and Scuba Terry showing up. So... Thank everybody who's live in the chat room. If you want to get in there yourself, we you can head out to, onto our website and usually get a, a link to Discord, or you can message us a, a variety of ways. Uh, but Discord's the way to go. That's where all the best conversations are going on, even better than the program. So let's see. What, should we just jump right on into the news, get that out of the way? And then we can talk about some other things we had. Uh, a- after the news, we had somebody ask some questions about uh, buoys and why we talk about them. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that uh, after the news. But the first article we have up is uh, scuba divers excited to resume activity following SDMC green light to, re- to restart tourism. This is on the BorneoPost.com, which they're saying is the largest English news website in Borneo. Hence the name I'm guessing. Uh, divers are looking forward to reopening of marine parks under the Sarwick government's effort to restart tourism activities after a three-month hiatus due to a COVID-19 outbreak. According to representatives, I had a pop-up just get in the middle of me, uh, according to representatives, some sort of representatives, according to representatives of the local scuba diving community, Jimmy Young said he had always been prepared for reopening even during the previous phase of the movement control order, MCO, period. We've got to love those three-letter acronyms. Since March 18th, uh, we have been receiving lots of inquiries from local divers. They are eager to make appointments for scuba season. On Monday, Minister of Tourism, Arts, and Culture, Dadak Adul Kirim Raham Hesma, wow, that is a mouthful, announced uh, specific tourism, arts, and cultural activities would be allowed in Sarwick effective today, June 17th, during the current recovery MCO, which then becomes RMCO. Wasn't that a band that used to play around the Midwest? You could see them at, yeah. That was Run DMC. Oh, okay. Similar. According to him, homestays, hotels, adventures, and extreme tourism, scuba diving, and snorkeling, and also theme parks, dry parks only are allowed to resume 
but operators must comply with standard operating procedures, SOP, set by the Sarwick Disaster Management Committee. In this respect, Young said scuba diving company that he represented would only accommodate new batch of clients this June 22nd under strict compliance with the guidelines under the SOP, including temperature screenings of all staff members and divers at its premises, record all names and contact numbers, regular hand sanitizing, wearing of face masks on lands, boats prior to entering the water, limiting number of divers on each boat trip, training course to maintain social distancing, disinfection of equipment before and after every use, sanitization of the premises, assets including boats on a daily basis. As additional safety measure, he would also prohibit divers from testing the equipment, such as a diver's mask, snorkel, wetsuit, gloves. We encourage them to choose and wear proper size to avoid any change. Many divers anticipated this day and were excited, ex- were expecting busy days ahead. Now, that's one thing I hadn't really considered. You know, once you own your own equipment, you forget some of that. But, uh, you know, going into a store and, and trying on sizes, um, yeah, if they're not going to let you do that, you, you got to just kind of guess by two or three. That's been some of the challenges we've been discussing in the industry on how we deal with people wanting to buy new gear. And also it extends into people wanting to do entry-level courses and what rental gear can we actually extend to them? And how do you sanitize a wetsuit with all the questions? Well, yeah, because the part part of it is that we really haven't gotten a clear expectation of how long the virus lasts, what conditions it's in. I mean, we we think we know more than a few months ago, but a wetsuit, you know, which is a fairly porous material, uh, you know, if there's a medium that it can live on for a while, I mean, if it, if does liquid preserve it? I don't know. Karen will and that's, that's why we've been, uh, we've been throwing out there with uh, all of our new students you know, you're wanting to get into this. Unfortunately, at this point, you're going to have to buy your own exposure protection. Uh, a yeah. hard surface like a regulator is very easy to to sanitize, and their guidance guidance has been put out by Dan and, and several other entities on how to sanitize our dive gear. But when it comes to exposure protection, it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah, because a BCD, I can see how you could sanitize that. You know, it's a, it's a nylon. You know, even though there is a texture to it, it seems like you could make an, an honest effort. But something, I mean, it's like sanitizing a sponge. I mean, can you can you throw it in a microwave and, and zap it all? Because, uh, you know, even if you bleach the heck out of it, there, it, you know, unless you did some sort of ringing or something, you know, alcohol baths. Yeah. And, you know, this is it's a very trying time. I, I work with a charter boat and I crewed on his boat last weekend and some of the things we had to some of the things we had to deal with with trying to uh meet the requirements and sanitize the vessel we ran three trips a day and it was a lot of work although i got to say eric is probably correct just don't lick the wetsuit i'm i'm thinking that's a good piece of advice almost no matter what the conditions are pretty much great guidance eric thank you mac you have anything to throw in on the uh the gear and sanitizing not at this point uh, like you said dan's put out a good a lot of good information on how to take care of your own gear but uh the aspect you've been looking at i haven't even thought about but it's got to be uh interesting to say the least 
And it's crossed mm-hmm. lines with training, with how do we modify training with air shares and things like that. And, you know, in the training environment, that's a concern. In the real world, it's pretty obvious. You know, we can we can treat corona. We can't treat dead. So just right. do what you have to do and go on. But in the training environment, it's been questioned how do we deal with these situations. And it's developing. Yeah, because yeah, if, if we knew exactly how long the virus would remain viable on a piece of equipment, then in a rental environment, you just say, okay, if we know it can't live more than four days, then you could say something like, okay, if you've rented out a wetsuit, then it can't go to the next person for at least a week. And then you know that it would have broken down and aged, but I don't think we've got enough information. Very true. And, you know, in the end, most of the time when we're doing open water classes and we're in the, uh, we're in the pools, the things that already exist in the pools, Corona is probably <laughs> the least of our concern. And the chlorine tends to kill everything, but there's still that moment afterwards. And, you know, nobody wants to take the risk of the liability. So it's, it's, it's still up in the air how we deal with that. And it's, it's been a rough issue in the dive community. Yeah, because I've, I've seen some things that talk about humidity being your friend and then other times, uh, you know, it can be a carrier. And another aspect along with your article, Darren, is, you know, they may have opened their area for diving, but I know several people that had truck lagoon trips scheduled that have been canceled because you can't get there. You have to yeah. for flights in areas that just aren't open yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how about this next one? You know, if you're, if you're starting to do some planning in the future, and we covered this one it's probably last year or maybe a little bit older. But Lake Mead is offering business opportunities for guided scuba tours on sunken bomber planes. Uh, and what they're referring to is the uh, World War II bomber, uh, which sunk on July 21st, 1948, just two years before the Korean War. It's a uh, Boeing B-29 Superfortress strategic bomber plane, and it was doing atmospheric research over southern Nevada. The crew, including the pilot, was at altitude about 30,000 feet east of Lake Mead, planned to dive just about 100 to 300 feet above the lake surface. Uh, when the crew performed the dive, uh, he got disoriented. As the plane leveled off, the crew was blinded by the light in the lake surface. The plane kept descending and eventually struck the lake. The bulk skipped off the surface of the lake as three of the four engines were ripped off from the winds. Is that something, or are they meant to say wings? And then the force I engine wings. burst in yeah, it burst into flames. The plane rose, fell back, surfaced mostly facing upward. Uh, the crew and the pilot Madison evacuated the plane, watched it sink from the distance of life rafts. Six hours after the crash, the crew had was rescued by the National Park Service employees. Madison's crew were ordered to never talk about the mission or the aftermath. The incident remained classified for more than fifty years. Wreckage was discovered in two thousand one by a private dive team. Over the next 18 years, various protections were filed for the sunken relic while diving expeditions sought to explore the buried historical treasure. Then in January 2018, the plane was considered a protected cultural resource and diving was no longer allowed. Now, after more than two years, National Park Service is opening the site up to businesses that are capable of leading guided scuba diving tours at the site. The commercial use authorization will be open for two years and be limited to 100 clients dives at the B-29 plane each year of the contract and unlimited scuba instruction and charter at other locations in the recreational area. 
section for these commercial use authorization will be issued through the competitive selection process based on various factors, including resource protection, ability to operate safely. safely. All applications must be received by National Park Service no later than 4 p.m. on July 15th, 2020. The biggest consideration I didn't mention is the monetary consideration. Uh, Joel Silverstein held that contract with the NPS to guide mm-hmm. tour and B-29 until they did the cutoff in 18. And a big part of the reason they did the cutoff was lowering the water levels on Lake Mead that brought that B-29 into recreational diving limits. But it's always been it's always been a contract deal where one entity is going to get the contract awarded, and they're limited on the number of visitors per year, and the NPS has great oversight in the way they conduct their dives. So I'm guessing they were just – the reason they opened it up was probably more for budgetary concerns. Meaning the park, the park department wants some money? Yeah, National Park Service was wanting that contract money because it's not a cheap dive. Um, to go out there costs quite a bit to actually get on one of those trips. It, it, it is a limited number per year, like they're saying, 100 per year. And that's 100 visitors, not 100 trips. Right. And so then that's also a, that's 100. having... <clears throat> go ahead. Well, I was going to say, whatever the they've quoted for the concession, uh, you know, divide that by 100, and that's just the cost that each diver needs to make. Uh, and you're hoping to have some sort of profit because that's money that you don't have access to because I'm, I'm sure they want paid in advance. Uh, well, most certainly. You, and then you've got to handle, you know, the dive insurance and uh, all sorts of other items. So uh, how much was a dive? I mean, because it, it, it originally was at tech depth. So was it probably what, was it 200 feet or was that about the depth of it? When the, if, I re- if I recall correctly, originally it was around 230. Okay. And now it's around 110, 100 to yeah. 110. Um, but some of the other draws, they also limit scuba concessions in the area. And there's also a, a Catalina PBY that's in the water there that's mm-hmm. not a dive site that you can hit. And several other draws for Lake Mead. And whoever gets that contract basically controls that area. So there's more than just a B-29, but the B-29 is the big draw. And it is expensive. If I recall correctly, I think a weekend, which included one dive on the B-29, one dive on the Catalina, and then a couple other areas. It was a four-tank dive. It was around 1,200. Yeah, yeah. That's a, and, and that's just the diving. That's not including housing and transportation and everything else to get there. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, I guess if you're just looking to, to you know, it's on your bucket list of, of different things you haven't done yet diving-wise, then, you know, that would be a good one. Because uh, you know you're going to be in a small group. You know, if you do the math, a uh, hundred per year, and they haven't done it the last couple of years. Yeah, very much so. And and like I said, they're very tight on controlling. And the uh, the previous operator, Joel Silverstein, he he was very adamant: do not touch it. Uh, the wings are cloth covered, and there is some degradation, even though it's in fresh water. It's been in fresh water for a considerable amount of time, and it's kind of a fragile wreck and they don't want to lose their ability to dive it so they're pretty hardcore about don't touch it so make sure your customers have good buoyancy control yeah 
Well, that could be part of his program. Did you say fabric covered on the wings? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there was fabric covering on the wings. B29 doesn't have fabric. Or was it was it fabric? There was fabric somewhere that they were very adamant that you didn't touch. That would be the inside, and the cockpit, the, the they, seat. They wouldn't. Like they wouldn't let any penetration. And oh. maybe it was a Catalina that they were. Does Catalina have a fabric wing? It can. Yes. Maybe it was a Catalina. They were so touchy about the fabric. All I remember is they were very. It was a very controlled dive, and it really wasn't enjoyable because it was so controlled, especially for the amount that you spend to go see it. But I'm glad they actually opened it back up because it is something that needs to be seen. It's not going to be seen unless we go visit and people take pictures and video and post it and share it in in the uh, social media world. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, we we need to make sure that these sites remain open and that people can get to them. Well, and uh, how, how about this one? A scuba diver rescued after a late resurfacing resurfacing well, throw yeah, a link out oh let me see if i can remember how to cut and paste i normally would do that but yeah got a technical disadvantage right now yeah this is one of those cases where the word resurfacing has thrown me off because it is correct term but I, i'm the, they're paving the roads around my area so i'm thinking tar and feather uh scuba never resurfaced uh on the stony lake north of Peterborough, a scuba diver who was briefly went unaccounted for in the north lake of Peterborough has been located safe. Around 12.40 p.m., emergency crews were called to Stony Lake among Fire Route 2 and Highway 28 near Burley Falls in North Kawartha Township for reports of scuba diver who was unaccounted for during a dive on Wednesday. The man uh, that was missing was in his 70s reported familiar with the lake. He was diving with another individual, was expected to resurface at a certain time, but was 15 minutes overdue. Peterborough County OPP Constable Joe Ayet tells Global News the man was located prior to officers arriving on the scene. The man is alive and well. No other details were provided. That seems kind of like a tight, tight time window. I mean, Mac, how many times have you gone 15 minutes over? Uh, might have happened once or twice. And that's open. Not gonna say that's open circuit. Can you? Yeah. How many times have we uh, had to twiddle our fingers for you know thirty to forty minutes with those uh, rebreather divers? Many times. Yeah, so, or uh, just I mean, think about being in the Cooper River and you get on a good gravel bed and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna extend this. Yeah, oh, but yeah. Uh, you, you don't want to make uh, Captain Tom upset, so you kind of uh, police yourself a little bit on those. Well, but, but I'm uh, guessing. Depending on what you're finding, man. <laughs> but at the same time, at 15 minutes, he's not calling the authorities and, and screaming the sky is falling. No. Yeah, I, I think I might press the uh, time limit a little bit. You know, if I can get one of those uh, three-inch uh, Megalodon teeth, uh, that would... Uh... Or the 48-inch Woolly Mammoth femur. Oh, yeah, there like... you go. There, there's, there's, there's been some of those parts where you... I don't have. A, I don't think I have enough uh, air in my BC and uh, my sausage to be able to get it up. <laughs> Boy, take that out of context. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, take that out of context, and we've got a show. Uh, <laughs> that's the other podcast. Be, well, well, and that goes right in with our next article. 
Uh, you walk the beach and you find something mammoth. Uh, a tusk was found at Sandwich Bay logged with the Natural History Museum. Uh, it is working to identify a find at Sandwich Bay this week, which is thought to be a mammoth tusk. What could turn out to be an extraordinary discovery is made on Monday when a pilot boat Coxwain, yeah, okay, Adam Cowell, uh, partner Marie Swineborn, and uh, children Isabel, 9, and Josh, 11, were taking a family walk. Adam said, we're collecting bits of driftwood. Went there is a shipwreck on the bay. The kids were jumping in the mud, and I saw what I thought at first was a piece of wood. I pulled it, and it came out was a tusk. I thought at first it was whale bone, but my partner's son said he thought it was a tusk. My partner contacted the Natural History Museum. They told us how to preserve it so it doesn't crack. It is now in the shed with wet cloths and cling film on it, and we have some preserving liquid on the way. The family from Deal is now waiting for the museum to let them know the results of the identification on whether it is an elephant or a mammoth tusk. Tony Overden of uh, Thanet and Sandwich Coast Finds Group said in a post, the tusk originates from a shipwreck. There are records of them turning up in a fishing nets in the 1970s and 80s. Most have been found to be porous due to the time and sea, so they are so they are exhibits. With some research, there's provenance with this find. Um, then there's an update from the Natural History Museum. The tusk is curved, but is not twisted into a three-dimensional spiral typical of mammoth, so that would indicate a prehistoric age. It is therefore very likely of a living elephant, but whether it is African or Asian species cannot be determined without DNA analysis. A test has been artificially cut off near the base, probably as a way of separating it from a dead animal. It is obviously historical, but not possible from the appearance to say how old it is. Shall we start the betting pool on whether or not they get it back? Well, I don't think they took it from them. It's in their shed. In the, in the U.S., you would have all sorts of uh, people swarming you because they've really tightened down on ivory. I mean, you could have something 300 years old that's been in your family and somebody reports you got ivory, and I think they can take it now. I'm surprised uh, pianos still exist. Been in your family for years. I don't think they can. I think you'd have a – I mean – We'd hope they wouldn't, but, I mean, just some of the stuff I've been reading, it seems that they've really strict on that. I would still like an elephant tusk in my anchor garden. (laughs) Elephant and a mammoth, yeah, that'd be good. Either or. At least I can say that I have, in fact, brought up an elephant. Where did you bring that up? Well, remember Carl Harris has actually brought up two mammoths, one of which is on display at uh, Andrews University. Yeah. You don't know the story of me recovering that elephant? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think we've got an episode. I'm trying to remember what episode that was. We Uh, talked about the elephant. I think that was one of the first. That was one of the early ones. Yeah. It's just too bad we did not have video or GoPros. Oh, gosh. It would have gone viral. talk about that again later, but just had to toss that in there. Yeah. Uh, Look up some of the early episodes, uh, one of the first 10 of the show. Well, we had Mac on that. Uh, I think we, I think we talked about it then. If not, it's a short one of the shortly after that. Uh, oh goodness, what a squirrel moment there! <laughs> well, and, th- and this next one's a little bit bigger than the squirrel monster fish. I know how much you love those uh, sea creatures. Uh, it, this one can weigh two and a half tons and grow ten feet long. It was spotted in Dorset, uh, world's largest bony fish. Uh, 
has been spotted off the Dorset coast. The ocean sunfish, or mola mola, is a strange-looking creature resembling a giant fish head without a body that can weigh more than a car. Its name refers to the habit of basking in the sun close to the water's surface. The fish is often as tall as it is long, and when swimming near the surface, the dorsal fin can make it look like a shark. And uh, with a face only a mother could love. My only question is, how do they taste? <laughs> if you get enough of them, I'm sure we could figure out how to uh, cook them a up. Two and a, half, two and a half ton fish, that's a good-sized barbecue. We could probably yeah. feed a group of divers with that. Yeah, the ocean sunfish was snapped just out of Port Portland Harbors by Liz Hemley, who shared her photograph. Uh, other people shared in the sighting. Yeah, if you go down, you can see some other photos of it. Well, did you see? Look down below. You see the one where it's on the beach. This one's in Australia. Kind of a bizarre looking. It, it almost looks like it's made of fiberglass, doesn't it? Look like a. Fa- it looks fake. I've got to say, if you're not in the chat room, you're missing the good stuff. We're gonna need a bigger grill. <laughs> Okay, now now here's one. I just got this, and this actually came in my email from the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, and the whole thing is talking about the water levels. So they're saying historic water levels affect the Tawas Point State Park, spur other closures and safety measures throughout the state. The record high water levels are taking a toll on the infrastructure. Uh, as flooding and erosion continue to threaten shorelines, rivers, and inland lakes, Michigan's waterways face other associated challenges too, including increased river flows, Submerged docks and piers, swimming and boating hazards, and damage to wildlife habitat. Several state parks and harbors are experiencing many of these issues. Tawas uh, Point State Park, a popular destination along Lake Huron on the Iosco County, has experienced unprecedented water levels, erosion and flooding over the last few years, as well as record-breaking rainfall last month, which is a side note, uh, resulted in a couple dam failures. Uh, which we don't typically see in Michigan. Uh, as a result of the Tawas Point State Park has closed and altered many amenities for the 2020 season. One of the park's entrance roads, which would provide access to park areas, closed to vehicle traffic between the contact station and the day-use area, but the road is open to visitors on foot. And then they go through. So we're not going to torture you with all the little details. But needless to say, it's affecting the uh, many of the parks. And then uh, we've got uh, other parks along the Great Lakes, the Cayman Bay Park, Ludington State Park, Muskegon State Park, Lime Island Recreation Area, Mackinac Island State Harbor. In that case, the uh, when when you have your docks, you know, my grandfather used to own marinas, and that was one of the things he hated is, uh, you know, back in 83, and I think he had retired by that point. But uh, it wasn't, you know, when, when the water level changes, uh, the people who are spending buco money on uh, docks to get to their boats, they don't want to have to either climb up or drop down too far. So you're constantly raising and lowering them. And then nowadays, almost all your dock have uh, electrical on them. So once the water level gets above your electrical conduit, uh, you start energizing the water a little bit. So uh, uh, there at the Mackinac Island, the electrical conduits are submerged. So there's going to be no electrical service available there. Well, um, 
I got to tell you, Darren, that uh, Mackinac State Harbor is open now. It opened mid last week, mm-hmm. and I I didn't notice the water level being much higher than any other time I've been up there. And there is electric power at the island. Um, there are you know, there's a lot of things that are delayed because of you know the COVID situation, uh-huh. but uh, everything is open up there. Uh, I do know that, like, Lexington State Harbor, which is south Huron, they're closed because they had dock damage from high water levels and ice this winter, and they don't have the assets to repair it. But I know that uh, Michigan has been opening up a lot of state harbors. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to, but I'm not sure exactly what happened. Maybe it had something to do with the governor and their boat and uh, up north. But, uh, <laughs> It was a pleasure for me to, you know, coming out of Ohio to go up to northern Michigan and actually be able to launch where we normally do. Because originally we thought we were going to have to launch the boat every day. The ramps are still open. They they always have been. But you couldn't get dock space. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are there are less boats than normal for this time of the year up there. Yeah. But they did open and, the and harbor. Yeah, we're seeing the same thing down here is that uh... – the marinas aren't full, and I think part of it's just a delay in getting boats in. And then also I'm anticipating that some people maybe with uncertainty about their financial situation may have said, yeah, I, I really don't think I got the money to put the boat in right now. And there's probably probably a lot of that going along. But, but the water levels are up a little bit in the straits. Mm-hmm. And that's probably indicative of a higher level in Lake Michigan, but the depths that I was seeing on some of the common wrecks, you know, Cedarville, were were within a, a couple of feet. It was negligible. Yeah, yeah, because Lake Michigan, uh, you know, we we dove out, we dove out of South Haven, and you have to go the back way to the marina. The road there along the river is closed, and then. Uh, uh, the river surface to the top of the seawall is less than a foot and a half. Yeah, I know we've got the same problems on uh, the St. Clair River down around Harsons Island, but it's kind of interesting. Maybe the straits kind of equal themselves out somehow. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Mac? No, I do. No, down here, I just got to go back to Lake Cor. You've dove out there before, and uh, did have our thankful Tuesday dive. Uh, this week there and I hadn't been there for quite a few years and you're familiar with both the public access where you launch your boat mm-hmm. and the opposite side where you go down the incl- inclination or the incline there is no beaches anywhere there it is flooded um, and if you're going down on the east side state cop as soon as you get to the edge there's water at the, at the pathway that's that high and I talked yeah. to a guy who was there, he says the water level there, some guys built that $1 million mansion on that outlet. He has uh, water three feet from his front door now. Yeah, Yeah, I know. (laughs) Last summer, uh, I think it was July or August, I was doing a class there with um, out of Wolf's, and we couldn't use the beach. I mean, the water was up to the path. Yep. And we went over to to the, uh, the launch, and we launched Jim's small boat, and we basically launched it in the parking lot. Yes. 
the the guy was saying it is several feet above the 100 year level. Yeah, and then uh, an article we talked about last week was just the normal uh, precipitation curve for Michigan, where we peak in July. So that means we still have uh, you know potentially six inches to a foot of lake rise that could happen this season. Well, and then this very last article we have is a divers are turning an old mooring rope in a new scuba dive attraction. This is from the BVIBeacon.com. Uh, it says, as part of his duties in maintaining the bitter end yacht club moorings fields, Ben Williams, owner of Sun Chaser Scuba, had to replace the mooring lines every five or six years, he said. This year, instead of just discarding the thick ropes, which had been overtaken by coral and sponges, Mr. William and his son, Chaser team, decided to transfer them into a new dive site, screwing them into the sand off Virgin Gorda and fashioning them into a set of vertical columns and the coral-covered archway through which divers can swim. We came up with the idea how we recycle what we already have to promote uh, BVI as a desti- uh, diving destination, which I, that's a British Virgin Islands, I believe. With the goal of increasing the Virgin Islands diving prestige, Mr. William and his crew constructed the arrangement near in December. Commercial diving services sank three aluminum model planes have been painted and molded to resemble sharks. Uh, we decided to place in the vicinity of the shark planes and expand the dive site specifically. It just adds another element to the dive site. After switching out the mooring lines for new ones last summer, Sun Chaser team embarked on the project in December. First, the crew had to send divers down to unshackle the lines from the sandy bottom where they had been resting for five months, then put them up in the boat to be transported to the site. On the boat, the crew stuffed the lines into five 55-gallon drums filled with salt water, to which they then pumped compressed air every five minutes during the journey to the North Sound uh, to Great Dog, preserving the soft coral and sponges that made their homes in the mooring lines, Mr. Williams said. As the dogs, the crews then fastened the lines of metal beams that CDS inserted into the ground while sinking the shark planos. Uh, the Sun Chaser crew worked periodically in the project through the winter and spring, repeating the process while still maintaining a full schedule dive lessons and tours. By the time they finished the end of April, they had transported secured 52 recycled downline stretching a total of 2,178 feet, some of which were so long they bent underwater, which inspired the arch design. The vertical columns, meanwhile, were meant to resemble kelp. Mr. Williams said, while working on the site, Mr. Williams, who readily admits he's not being artistically gifted, was worried the columns and arches would resemble a bunch of lines of trash. But once it's all done, we were a huge relief. It actually looked like a structure. Because the mooring lines have already been attached to so much coral being moved to the dogs, the fish and other life quickly swarm the lines once they are fastened in place. What blew us away was really the amount of marine life that reacted to it so quickly. The amount of schooling fish you get up in the shallows is fantastic. The new site is a specially valued addition to North Sound, where the dearth of places for dive enthusiasts to explore and dive instructors to teach is further limited when northern swells come in, said uh, Chris Jordan, owner of CDS. It's a great tourist economy. It gives them a great dive site. I didn't realize that coral would grow on mooring lines. Oh, most certainly. How many how many mooring lines have you gotten your gloves cut on zebras and quaggas? Well, zebras and quaggas, it makes sense, but I kind of figured they would move too much for uh, coral. You know, sponges, yeah. The coral, I wouldn't have thought. It's a very interesting way to form an artificial reef. Yeah. Well, you, you think about it. What if you just did, what if you just started off with new lines 
and put a jug about 15, 20 feet just to, to keep them taut. And then you could just let a reef go. Cause that's, that's part of the problem is that, you know, the, the coral doesn't just normally grow in the sand. It usually has to attach to something, which is why I think these objects are so valuable for these artificial reefs. So I, I, I think it's a great idea. Oh, phenomenal idea. And I think if they really want to improve the diving, just get rid of the salt in the water. Yeah. But phenomenal way to make an artificial reef and reuse resources. It's a win-win. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. And then before the show, we had uh, somebody was asking about buoys. So let's go ahead and do a little bit of uh, discussion about buoys. And uh, Kevin would love to talk about it, but he is not here tonight. So we'll go ahead and and fill in. Um, in Michigan, we have a preserve program. We have the uh, it's uh, approved by the state. Uh, they're typically nonprofits. I can't remember the exact number, but here in the southwest side, we have the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve. One of the newer ones is the West Michigan Preserve. So. Ours goes from the Indiana state line all the way to just north of Holland. And then from Holland to little north of Muskegon is the West Michigan. Uh, and then it goes pretty much around the state. There's a few gaps. And some of them are various levels of activity. But if you're a, a charter operator, you know, the old way that we would do it is somebody would tie a line onto a wreck, maybe float a jug, you know, one, an old tide bottle or something. And that would just help you uh, more to it. You typically still dropped an anchor just to make sure that you were secure. Uh, and, and charter operators don't want to do that. I mean, they don't want to damage the wreck. Uh, they want to they want to know before they go out that there's a, a point that they can attach to. You know, they don't want to have to drop an anchor and snag the wreck and try to find it that way. Uh, so the state had approved a plan a few years ago on how to moor. So you had all these unofficial mooring projects. So they came up with these rules and on the rules is they had to be approved by uh, three different bodies. I believe it was the Coast Guard uh, uh, or the Lake Charter Association, not not, not the charter. The, the Lake Carriers. Lake Carriers, yeah. Lake Carriers Association and then the, the state itself. Uh, so the and and part of it was the cost. They wanted the preserves to pick up the cost, which are nonprofits and very hard to fund. But the state eventually came up with. Uh, they said that they were going to do a combined uh, preserve. So all uh, not preserve uh, paperwork. So all the preserves said, "Hey, here's all the wrecks that we think we can buoy in the next couple of years." Provide the state, and it all got on one permit, and all those locations were preserved were were approved. Uh, and that was about three years ago. So everybody's been rushing. I think that permit runs out. You know, once you get once you get the the buoy up, then it's grandfathered in, and then you can just keep uh, putting the buoy on. So usually in the spring, uh, when we don't have a pandemic going on, uh, somewhere in the March to April time frame, you'll get the buoys out, uh, and then you know, usually sometime in October, uh, we'll we'll bring them down right before the the storms start to come in. Uh, and there's a few different ways of approved to moor them. We can't, we can no longer moor them on the racks. Uh, there has to either be a crib. Uh, another option is to use screws. Uh, when I say crib, you could, it's going to be a uh, steel box 
uh, loaded with enough material. Uh, usually there's a chain that goes up to a mooring line and then it goes to a subsurface buoy and then a surface buoy. And depending on how deep the wreck is and where it is in relation to shipping lanes will determine the buoy size. So our, our buoys have to have uh, lights on them. Uh, and uh, Mac, is there something reflective in it so that they reflect on radar? Or is it just how the buoy's constructed? It's the buoy itself, but we have the strobe light on it. Mm-hmm. And it is in the shipping lane. And since it's a Coast Guard approved now, it's also will be on the marine charts. Yeah. But some guy putting around at night on autopilot won't see it because he'll be down below. Yeah, he won't be paying attention. And, that, and that's where we, we usually run into some of the uh, thing with the, with the fishermen not happy because uh, they'll be running their outriggers and their dipsy divers and uh, you know they'll snag uh, three or four hundred dollars worth of fishing gear on that line, and that will pull it off. And then they'll be out their gear. Uh, the other advantage to having the buoys, though, is if you're a commercial operation, you've got guys on the boat you can go straight out to a known wreck, anchor on it in a time period, do a dive, go to a different one, do a dive, and leave. If you did not have the buoys there. You got to scan it. You got to figure out where it's at. You got to put the, the anchor out and try to drag over it, which then damages the wreck. So mm-hmm. most of them do not want to do that because of time, and that's time is money. Yeah. Got it buoyed. I can go out and I get my wreck done and get you back. And yeah. so it's down to the money part. Yeah. And Mac just hit the two biggest points about the buoy programs. And there are official and unofficial programs, depending on the lake, the state. Um, the two biggest reasons we buoy wrecks are one, so we're not dragging anchors and hooking into our wooden wrecks and tearing them up, and two, speed. You know, I crew on a, I crew on a couple of different charters, and when we go out and we have to, you know, find the wreck and then drop a diver in to tie it in, you're looking at anywhere from a twenty to thirty, maybe even longer process. Your divers are up on deck. They're getting their exposure protection on. They're, they're heat stroking out in their dry suits, and they want to get in the water. So you want to get them in. The other thing is, you know, for example, in, in Ohio waters, in Lake Erie, we have a an official sanctioned program. We have 11 wrecks we buoy, and the reason we buoy those wrecks isn't for commercial purposes, but to try to get the recreational divers out there looking at the wrecks and they're they're all chosen based upon historical significance there's a big spreadsheet to pick which wrecks because those programs require concrete anchors and it's all of them are anchored off the wreck but your unofficial buoy programs um you head to the east end of lake erie for example there's one particular charter that does most of the buoying of the wrecks and they do it to speed it up and in the beginning of the years, we're going out to the more commonly visited wrecks. There's always somebody on the boat that's the, I don't know, lowest IQ or whatever, that basically we find it on sonar and we hot drop them on the wreck to find the mooring. And most of our moorings, we tie into the wrecks. If, if it's a big steel wreck, we're not going to hurt the wreck by wrapping a chain around something. So on the big steel wrecks, we have a chain we have a line coming up, and then we put a subsurface buoy. 
typically anymore, they're used rebreather guys go through all of this uh, Zorb and we take their jugs and we put them about 30 feet under, under surface so that there's something that's easy to find with sonar. And it's, if you can drop a diver down, they only drop to 30 feet and then raise a line that's been sunk. Because remember in the Great Lakes, we have this thing that happens in the winter called ice. So anything that's on the surface, any kind of a buoy is going to be crushed. So everything we do, we take them off in the fall, bring them back in the spring. And a lot of the unofficial buoys are laundry detergent jugs. It's a biodegradable detergent that's not going to harm the environment. And they're cheap. And they're usually pretty easy to spot. So there, there's an, a number of, of different buoy programs, official and unofficial, that go on throughout the Great Lakes. And they all have the same purpose, like Mac, Mac said. It's about getting to the wreck quick finding it, getting tied in, and it's also about preserving the wrecks. With our wooden wrecks, we don't want people going out to the wrecks and dragging an anchor to hook into it because you're going to damage the old wooden wrecks. Um, we've got a great one in, in Lake Erie um, called the Oxford that has a fantastic wheel, a double wheel on the helm you know, at, at the stern that's laid over sideways because one at one point in time a diver going out there to dive it they were hooking the wreck and they they got their anchor tied into the wheel and it it pulled it over and damaged the wreck so we try to do moorings on those that are off the wreck so that the divers can come down a line and when they get to the bottom there's then a lead line that takes you over to the wreck so hopefully that answered your question in the chat room anything else that uh, you'd like to know about Boys and moorings. Yeah, in 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 the chat room, I have pasted some photos, a couple of the buoys, just to kind of give you a little bit of uh, idea of their size and scale. So, I mean, these aren't like your giant, you know, commercial major harbor buoys. Uh, I would say that buoy is probably about four foot uh, from the bottom to the to the top light. Uh, there's a ring on the bottom that the uh, usually there's a a chain leader that goes down to a subsurface buoy. And then I did at, show a, a photo of the sub subsurface buoy, which in our case has the, uh, the, uh, who donated the money for this particular buoy, uh, which was the Michigan underwater divers club, uh, donated a lot of funds for that particular buoy placement. And it depends on the state. Um, you know, I, I can speak well for the Ohio program. Our buoys, which went through an approval process, the same as the Michigan Underwater Preserves. They're a very much more compact buoy, but they're still, they're wrapped in, in reflective material. They have an LED light on top, and they also have the name of the wreck and the license, the permit number on the buoy. And that's for the 11 official, officially moored wrecks. The rest of them, they've got tide jugs. Yeah. <laughs> So Tide's the unofficial sponsor of most of the wrecks. Yeah, exactly. But I will You're, say the, the yellow detergent jugs are much easier to spot than the orange Tide jugs. Yeah. Uh, and the, and, and the wrecks, you know, even in the Straits, up in the Straits, they're not using buoys quite the size of the ones the Southwest and West are using. And the ones that were buoyed last weekend, uh, there were 
there were four buoys up. Uh, we put an additional five out. I was able to spot them from about a mile and a half to two miles out, depending on which way the sun was facing. That's not too bad, then. No, and it, it makes it a heck of a lot easier to find the wrecks when there's something on the surface that says, right below me is a wreck. Yeah, because yeah, so, sometimes you'll see uh, people use the bleach bottles, which tend to just look like... Uh, uh, what we call those bleach seagulls. bottles. Gull buoys. Gull, Gull buoys. buoys, yeah. You think you got it, you get closer, and then it flies away. <laughs> I've always said you always see gulls on a wreck. Yeah. And the programs have matured. Um, you know, the Michigan program is relatively recent. As Darren said earlier, the permitting was only processed in the last, I'm going to say that process started probably 15 years ago, and the actual application only went through eight years ago. Yeah. And it's well, not well, a cheap process. And the preserve in, in Michigan, the Michigan Underwater Preserve Council is a co- completely nonprofit organization, and they don't have a fund stream. And, you know, they're trying to get this done on minimal dollars. So if you're feeling, you know, like you'd like to contribute, this is where Kevin would be great to throw in because Kevin's good at this. It it just does nothing but expand our diving capabilities within the waters of the state of Michigan. And I hate to say that being a Buckeye, but Michigan has good diving. Just bad football. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, the the thing with all that water is that uh, we're we're you, know, you have to be good at making wrecks to have wrecks. So and we don't make new wrecks, not on purpose. <laughs> so have you guys gotten into water lately? Well, well we had the uh, thankful Tuesday dive. That was the most recent for the mud club. Yeah, how, how did that? Yeah, how'd that one go? I think we had seven people. Uh, and I think six of them got in the water. I think the most interesting part that I thought about was there was no quag or zebra mussels, whereas pawpaw, you'll cut yourself to ribbons. So I don't know why Cora does not have that. I'm guessing it probably has something to do with oxygenation and just the makeup of the water. And how much calcium is in it also makes a difference. Yeah, because isn't that some of the reason why we're seeing uh, less muscle density recently is that all the calcium's been free calcium's been used up so it's a little bit of a challenge well i know the superior doesn't have it because their calcium level is very low and they need that calcium they extract from the water for their shells but you know pawpaw versus cora that's it was night and day it was that noticeable i think um karen and uh amy were out there they got out to about 50 something foot and they were having huge fish just go right on by their face. May I stayed into the shore off to the right and did a little metal detecting. And uh, visibility wasn't too bad as long as I didn't muck it up. I think everybody had a good time. Well, Karen, if you hit 57, you were almost close to the bottom hole. And I can pretty much tell you where you were. Cora is a fun lake to dive. Well, I like the other side because I know where all the wrecks are. The the toilet, the trampoline, you know what I mean? There's more stuff, I think, on the east side. There is. Um, when you, The benefit, though, from going out of the launch is you have better surface conditions. You, you, know, have, you have the restroom. You have a bathroom. That's a big one. And you don't have that damned hill. 
Yes. That hill gets old after a couple of days of being out there. But if, if you hit 57, did you guys go out of the ramp? Yeah, we were at the, at the DNR lot. Wow. Then Karen and Amy did a heck of a swim if they hit 57. That is my recollection. Yeah. You know, we've got a couple of areas in Lake Erie that have no zebras. We've got a couple of uh, phenomenal wrecks, one of them the Plymouth, which is a great schooner. It's embedded to about, uh, the rails are about six feet off the bottom, but there are zero zebras on it. And the thought is that we have oxygen depletion zones within Lake Erie. I'm going to have to look into your calcium depletion. That's an interesting concept because I'm I imagine they take the calcium from water to build their shells. Yep. Darren, did you get in the water? Uh, I did a couple weeks ago. I did a dive on the Rockaway after the uh, buoy had been put out there. Uh, so uh, the visibility to surface was pretty, and but when you got down, we had about 20 feet on the bottom. Uh, some fresh boards were exposed, and then some other areas were buried. A only saw maybe one or two gobies, but uh, quite a few catfish. Some good-sized ones, about five or six. You know, the Rockaway, if you ever dive the Rockaway, you want to make sure you look down the center board. There's always a couple looking up at you there. Uh, and they, they're they pretty conditioned for divers, so they don't, you know, they'll, they'll hold the ground, and you can get right up to them. I think what you mentioned uh, about no gobies, was interesting because uh-huh. if you've been on some of our wrecks, like uh, the Farmer or Max wreck, when you get down and you're trying to stay off the bottom four or five feet, gobies are right there, and they scatter around. Yeah. And they just screw the visibility up between you and that two feet off the wreck. Yeah. And and I don't know why there, there, was, why there wasn't any. Yeah, those gobies, they just, uh, they, they'll turn up that bottom. Uh, and I don't, I this is probably the only time that I've been on a shipwreck, at least uh, less than 100 feet, that wasn't just covered in gobies. And I think part of that is due to the other fish and other animals. It's like, I got to have something to eat. They're starting to eat the quagga mussels and the gobies. Yeah. I mean, when Finally. you're starving, you eat anything. Yeah. Bring it on. Well, and then natural selection. You know, if you've got a, a taste for those and they're plentiful, then uh, you're an advantage of somebody who's a little bit of a picky eater. I hate to think that gobies taste good because they're so <laughs> small. It would take so many. Well, it's it's kind of like smelt. Hmm? You know, you, smelt dipping. I, I just you, remember a couple of years ago out there, there were so many of them. If they had teeth, I don't care how small they are, I wouldn't have been diving. Yeah, if, if gobies were piranha, we'd have been in trouble. Yeah, we'd have been touched. <laughs> That's interesting. Just curious curious hearing that the gobies seem to be fading, at least on the Rockaway. Be curious to hear as people start getting out and hitting some of the more some more wrecks, are they seeing the same thing? It would be interesting now that we, you know, talk about it out loud. Yeah. Well that's the only uh lake dive I've gotten in so far this year. You know, with Father's Day coming up, who knows? Maybe somebody will will get out this weekend. And I got into the river two weeks ago, and I know Larry and them got in the river. They had a couple of jobs over the quarry. They'd lost their drag line, so they went out and recovered that. Had a good dive. Then we've been doing a little dock work. 
and inspections of docks for obstructions for some of the bigger yachts. And mm-hmm. current out there is whipping. If you're not, uh, the, the closer you are to the bottom, obviously the lower you'll go, the current's less. But you sure need a handhold or a good river stick. What part of the river are you in? I was in around the industrial island, Marina Island. Okay. Visibility is about four inches, so you really wanted to have something to hang on to, and that's for the light. Boy, I can't wait for the river diving to come back. Yeah. I missed that uh, Niles River. That's two years now we haven't been able to, you know, we were diving that two and three times a week. Well, I remember there was one year I must have had 20, 30 dives there in the river. Uh, yeah, we used to start it early in the spring before you get out in the big lake. And then uh, about the you know about the end of August, we'd start back in the river again and get a lot of diving in. So with the currents this year, we should have all sorts of fresh items to go looking for. Oh, I can only imagine. It is whipping. And it's been two years of whipping current. Yeah. Well, I can say that the uh, the Straits of Mackinac are looking fantastic. Managed to get uh, 13 dives in over the weekend. Only 13? <laughs> well, most of them were working dives. I was doing the moorings because most of the, most of the uh, wrecks out there weren't moored yet. And a couple of wrecks, like Cedarville, has three moorings. And it Have was... totally broken in half by now? Not yet. I, I haven't dove it for a couple of years, but I remember when she broke open. So you could go through the middle now. It's it was a lot more fun now. Yeah, you can you can drop in if you go in at the break, which is buoyed. Yeah, you could actually drop into the hull and go down the conveyor belt. Wow! If I, and and don't do that if you're listening to this. Don't do that just because you heard it here. If no. you're not if you're not trained and and at that level to do penetration, don't just drop in there and get on the conveyor belt and go into the wreck. When when did the uh, when did she sink? Do you remember? Sixty four. I dove her in seventy three, and you could go into the cabins, and there's things like TV sets. It didn't work because you know, but that was before couldn't, she tried couldn't get the it. signal underwater. I'm betting. Oh, I, I absolutely. You know, it's, it's a little awkward. Yeah, but now with the HD, it wouldn't work either. That wreck is so different. It, you know, since it sank, I mean, it's. It's upside down almost now. It is. And some of the cabins, you still have uh, coveralls and clothing hanging off of some of the bunks. There's still some pillows that are still recognizable as pillows. Uh, I actually, without going into detail, I made it into a couple of areas I hadn't before. And it's amazing that there's still textiles intact. Well, you know, you usually will find belts, shoes, some hats. And woolen items, you'll find woolen and canvas items. Yeah, and there's still cloth items. There's still coveralls that are recognizable as coveralls hanging from a couple of the bunks. And That's I was kind of surprised at that. Yeah, long time. But a lot of the wood trim is collapsing, um, and penetration has become more tenuous. Yeah, the engine room is still very open. Uh, the conveyor belt alley is still very open. The wheelhouse is still very open, but there are certain areas that I used to go to that you just can't get to now. Yep. So that just means that uh, if you haven't gotten trained for it, get your training and get the dives in because these wrecks aren't getting any better condition as time goes on. 
And I will say, we got on a wreck. Uh, Mac, you ever been on the Minnesota that sits directly under the bridge? Actually, I have. <laughs> I have never been able to get on that wreck because of traffic and just conditions. And we actually got on the Minnesota and the Stalker, which are both right right up against the bridge. Yep. Well, the Stalker, I've, you know, that's a common. You, you used to have to watch out because those damn ferry boats back in the Clorox jug days, they didn't last two or three days because mm-hmm. you're right in the shipping lane. And I can understand that. But when you're down and you got a boat anchored on it and they come whipping by like that, it's not very pleasant. It isn't. But I was amazed the Minnesota, the rudder from the Minnesota is laying on the bottom separated from the wreck and it's still there. And it was a wreck that was captured in the ice. The crew walked ashore and it's been known for many, many years, even through the, you know, the pirate days where we could rape, mm-hmm. pillage and plunder the wrecks. That rudder is phenomenal, enormous and just laying there on the bottom separated from the wreck. Now, I don't say rape and rib and plunder. It's like there are now existing as coffee table and chairs and ornaments with brass plaques telling you where they came from and a little history of the wreck. So there's wreck mementos. Out there and it's public education, public education of the shipping history of the Great Lakes. And I will say that that rudder would look phenomenal in my anchor garden. But we can't do that now. Talking I've also, about- been in water, also been in the water quite a bit. Uh, I've been teaching some tech classes this year. And in honor of the COVID thing, it's been one student at a time. And that's been challenging. Economically, it's a pain in the ass. Well, economically, it sucks. But if I only did this for the money, I'd be standing on a corner trying to sell myself and probably get a, get ahead. And I wouldn't make much money selling myself on a corner. But to me, it's more of a challenge because I, I like to at least have two students so that they can learn from each other. Because if I'm a teammate with a student, it kind of makes it too easy for them. Because sometimes I'll just help them and then I'll be like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to let them learn this. But did a great weekend at Gilboa a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a couple of smaller quarries in Ohio. Been a busy spring. A lot of a lot of underwater time. Excellent. Just looking forward to getting my own underwater time yeah. outside of classes. Have either of you seen the new Discovery show, uh, Mysteries of the Deep? Uh, it's it's hosted by Jeremy Wade, who used to have the program where he would go out and fish for extreme fish all over the world, and he they finally stopped that. But I uh, did. Reason, I know the show the, you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he one of the because it it's the typical and unfortunately I'm seeing too many of these shows now where they have a, a panel of experts, you know, five or six experts, and they've got the show ideas and they take a two minute idea and they stretch it out to about ten to fifteen minutes and three commercial breaks. Uh, but one one of the first three episodes, uh, the one of the wrecks was the Windy Eight. Oh. Up up there by the straits and and that was nice just to see them talk about that and show some of that and that's a a wreck that i haven't dove on but that is a you know it's it's one that's still got the mast and is in really nice condition the windy it is phenomenal great story and almost all of his imagery was from becky kagan's shot oh she's great they had almost no no original imagery for that show 
and they brought in people that were from outside of the diving world. And it was interesting hearing their thoughts. And some of them were kind of, I'll just say quirky. Oh, about how the wreck went down and whatnot, but just seeing input yeah. from people not within the diving realm and, and the Great Lakes history world yeah. discussing this wreck, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm, 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 I like the uh, promotion just for the uh, Great Lake diving, but uh, th- those programs, and, and unfortunately, I'm probably part of the problem because I, I seem to watch just about all of them, but you know, you have the mysteries of the abandoned and all sorts of them, but it's that same premise. They get, you know, they have the same, you, like they're experts and they have some that are on engineering, some that are on history and it all, all, all tends to, to follow the same thing where they over dramatically say stuff. And you know what they do is they interview all these people for about 20 minutes and then they just kind of splice together uh, what they think is the most interesting. You aren't talking about when Valerie discovered Baltimore's, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't mention any names, but yeah. But uh, well, at first I thought I saw somebody on. I'm like, well, that doesn't look quite look like Valerie. Well, it wasn't Valerie, <laughs> but that's all right. I also yeah. discovered the Griffin. Ah, last weekend actually. Yeah, you and about twenty. You know what I need to do? What we need to do is we need to have like an alcohol that we make and call it the Griffin, and then you can discover the Griffin every weekend. Well, upon further review, I figured out it was actually, you know, a used diaper. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you make it neutrally buoyant, then uh, it could go on three or four of those discovery shows. It could be a UFO, and then it could be. Uh... And for those yeah. those that are on Facebook that are interested in the Great Lakes and, and the history of our, our shipping and shipwrecks, um, there's a name that's well-known. Brendan Baylod, he used to run a website, and he has some of the most intense collections of Great Lakes history that he has managed to collect somehow. And he's got one of the best lists of known and unknown shipwrecks within the Great Lakes. He started a Facebook group called Great Lakes Shipwreck Research, and he's been doing Facebook Lives every other week and then during the corona period he was doing it every week where he's bringing a lot of well-known people in the great lakes shipwreck discovery community and history community um some of the names you may recognize um dave trotter um he's also had the lead historian from bowling green and it's phenomenal getting to hear these stories and these people just bringing things out and we've also been doing zoom rooms after some of these presentations and th- that is where some of the <laughs> we'll say that the uh, the chaff separated from the wheat so if you have that interest look it up great lakes shipwreck research group um and there's always phenomenal content on there um it's not a bunch of pictures of known shipwrecks he actually does a shipwreck of the month that is an unknown shipwreck, an unfound shipwreck. Uh, most of them are the mysterious dropped out of the blue and never seen again. And it's a collaboration of a lot of the big names in Great Lakes shipwreck history, just having discussions. Just a blind plug for him. Not, not like he makes any money off of it. But if you're interested in Great Lakes shipwreck history, it's, it's phenomenal. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm pasting a link in the chat room. So if you ever want to go and see it, it's going to be there. And it's kind of interesting. There's one gentleman who lives in Oakland County in Michigan who is a rather new open water diver, but he's been spending his winter on Google Earth and finding a lot of shallow wrecks. And a couple of couple of guys just last weekend, uh, Dan Fountain, and I can't recall who was out there with him, they actually went out and ran some side scan and did some dives on a couple of wrecks that he had found over the winter with Google Earth. And it's not very common that you see wreck hunters collaborating. Usually it's, you know, very quiet and cutting each other's throat in the middle of the night. That's generally because you're in a shallow environment of 30 feet or less and they're rubble wrecks. They are. But it's this particular group, there's been a lot of discussion and sharing, and it's it's different. But if you're interested, look into it. Nothing to lose but your time. Well, Mac, do you have a dive safety story for us this, this week? Oh, let me see. Got something. We're going to call it a lesson in never forgetting your basic training. Here's the scenario. Divers. Nell had more than 10 years of diving experience. She dived for years before the photography bug bit her. Since then, she's lived and breathed them, good at spotting little things on a reef that most divers miss. And she quietly discovered she had the skills necessary for macro photography, capturing extreme close ups of small underwater animals. And she was petite and fit from a life of regular exercise. Ted, had been diving for a year and had made about 50 dives in his mid-30s, had no known health problems. However, he didn't exercise regularly and wasn't in the best shape. He was about six foot two, tall, weighed about 250 pounds. Because he didn't get out much during the day, he liked to swim around a lot on dives, doing his best to stay as much of the reef as he could before exhausting his air. He was known to be and to known to finish dives early because he ran low on air. I think that's called the big dog syndrome. The dive. Ted's regular dive buddy was sick, but he didn't want to pass up on their dive boat reservation, so he showed up without a partner. The boat crew asked Ted if he would mind buddy in with Nell, and he agreed. Nell told Ted she was a photo- she was a photographer, and she planned to take photos on the dive, but didn't give him any more details than that. Ted and Nell descended to the bottom again, swimming along the reef. Ted was enjoying the dive when he saw Nell stop and move close to the reef. He assumed she was going to take a quick photo, and then he would move on to see the dive site. An accident. After waiting more than five minutes without an indication from Nell that she was done and wanting to continue the dive, Ted began looking around. He did his best to keep Nell in his peripheral vision. He did want to explore some more, though. He'd paid for the dive, not to watch another diver nap on the bottom. so. Ted moved along the reef. He would glance back and note Nell had relocated, but she always seemed to be hovering in place with her camera up to her mask. Ted was a little annoyed, but and not paying attention to the bottom time or even where he swam. Suddenly, he noticed it was hard to breathe. He looked at his pressure gauge and realized he was almost out of air. And on top of that, he was 60 feet underwater, had no idea where his dive buddy was. Ted began to panic. He was a long way from the surface. He looked around for the boat, and he couldn't find it. He began to ascend, then glanced back at the reef and spotted Nell. She looked up. They made eye contact. 
He signaled to her that he was low on air and was going to surface. She immediately began swimming towards him, signaling him to slow down. She clipped her camera to her BC, pulled her alternate air source out, getting it ready for him. Ted got one last breath from his own regulator before he ran out of air. Nell arrived at that same moment. She felled onto his BCD while she gave him her alternate air source, positioned herself directly in front of his face, making eye contact, signaling him to breathe slow, take it easy. After a couple of breaths, she could see him begin to calm down. Nell never let go of Ted, kept a firm grip on his BC to prevent him from bolting, and slowly made a controlled ascent to the surface. Nell helped Ted orally inflate his BCD because he had no air left, and then they swam back to the boat. The analysis. Both divers made mistakes. Nell didn't accurately describe her plans for the dive, and even though it wasn't the dive Ted imagined, he should have stayed closer to Nell. He also should have monitored his own air supply along with his position relative to the boat. Had they discussed the dive and their mutual goal, they could have compromised to spend part of the the time uh, photographing and the rest exploring. But neither diver explained what they expected. It could have turned out far worse than it did. A rapid, uncontrolled ascent from 6 feet could easily have caused an arterial gas embolism and Ted could have lost consciousness even before he made it to to the surface. A key to being a good dive buddy is to ensure you have compatible goals underwater. Photographers are often so focused, no pun intended, on getting their shots, they forget about their dive buddies. Often the best dive buddies for underwater shooters are people who like to be good spotters, looking for interesting scenes or critters to photo. When buddying with someone new, talk about air consumption rates. In this case, Nell was fit. She'd been diving around. Even if she'd been diving around more, she would have used significantly less air on the same dive than Ted. The fact that she was also hovering in place, relaxing and concentrating on her subject made it very likely that she was using very little air on the dive. And realistically, the boat crew should not have teamed them up as dive buddies, but it's possible they were the only two unaccompanied boat divers on board. So the lesson for life. Monitor your air supply. No one is responsible for you running out of air but you. Stay with your dive buddy. Dive buddies don't have to stay on top of each other, but they should stay close enough to assist should a problem arise. You should have similar dive goals. This should have been worked out before the dive begins. Plan the dive. Dive the plan. Move slowly and easily through the water. Rushing around is the quickest way to burn up and throw your Nothing we didn't know from basic scuba, but we got to remember it and practice it. And that's it. That that that's a good one. I mean, that could have turned out much worse. It could have, but no. I was interested in the analysis because you normally wouldn't have said it was her fault either. But again, dive buddy should have made a dive plan. That's the key issue. Well, and and that's one thing that kind of brings up the point of you know unplanned dive buddies. You know, if you're on the boat and they say, hey, were you willing to dive with this other person? It's good to have that conversation with that person of what type of dive they expect to do. And, you know, if you're a bigger, out-of-shape guy like me, what you and, you, and you're going to be diving with a uh, fit, younger female, uh, they can almost double you in air consumption. I'm, you know, at, at my point, I'm... 
pretty lean on air. I think I, I can get a good, I can stretch a tank pretty well, but you know, you get, you get some of these, uh, smaller framed people and, uh, it's possible that they can do quite a bit more. Uh, well, it's and, always a good idea to take a redundant supply. I know that when they went out yesterday, mm-hmm. Amy had another bailout. Yeah. I know she wasn't, you know, in the lake, calm conditions, but she was prepared because they had had an issue, either of them. They got extra air. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's just a safety. A nice thing about the bailout, even if you're using it at shallower dives, you get that muscle memory of making sure that you've got it so that when you do the deeper dive where it's, it, where it's necessary, yeah. uh, you're, you're used to it. And a then... Lot people, uh, a lot of people forget, though, once you run out of air, you can't automatically inflate your BC. Right. Right, yeah. And that's one of the things we did in the, the pool this winter, uh, played around uh, orally inflating a BC just to try it out. Uh, and, and the other thing when you have your bailout is every once in a while, well, maybe when you're doing your safety stop, try breathing out on that uh, bailout because uh, you want to make sure that that's, you know, still working that, you, you know, that a little, little check at the surface. Cause some people will, uh, you know, they'll get the bailout ready and they'll turn it off just so it doesn't like weep or leak uh, during the dive. Uh, but you want to make sure that, you know, your regulator and, first stage and second stage are all working as you expect. I will say that's one thing we did smart again this year is when we had that uh, intro to scuba and the experienced people come, we had the, the hula hoops to go through to check your trim. Yep. We shot buoyancy bags, lift bags. We had that dolphin don equipment. Yeah. We did a lot of the exercises. A lot of people haven't done since uh, they got certified. I Trying to think, that was probably the last time I had done a Dolphin Don was probably during my certification. And it gave me confidence doing it again because it was easier than I remember. I mean, there were some things to remember like, oh, yeah, yeah, you do that. But it's much easier to work through those when you have uh, when you're in a pool uh, at a fairly shallow depth uh, with great visibility than when you're in cold water, dark no visibility and then a challenging situation. You know, it's interesting. Like what you just mentioned is when the guy says, the biggest thing I had is I forgot. I didn't have a weight belt to put on my lap. It's in your BC. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, when I did it originally, I would have had a weight belt, but this time it was integrated in the BC. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, you, you did have to hold on to the BC when you took it off. Otherwise, uh, somebody with some extra buoyancy uh, can can rock it to the surface pretty quick. I've been staying quiet because if I got on my soapbox about this, we'd be in <laughs> two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold back. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it. I'll keep it brief and to the point. And this is one thing that that uh, I was at Gilboa a couple weeks ago with my intro to tech advanced high truck student, and the deep water deck was loaded with rebreather divers. And I took them over there and walked them around, introduced them to some people, you know, showed them some gear. And then they were all getting in the water. And I looked at him and I said, why do you think they're all here? And he kind of looked at me really funny. And I'll paraphrase. Um, actually, I'll change what I said to, they're here to tune up. 
I may have said something along the lines of they're, they're, they were there to unscrew themselves. <laughs> but, you know, in, in the tech world, in the Great Lakes, you go to the quarries in Ohio mainly because that's, you know, Hay Quarry in, in Illinois, or we've got White Star Gilboa in Ohio. In the early year, they're swarmed with these guys that are just carrying all this gear. They've got these extra bottles, all this crap. And all the new open water divers are looking at them like, you know, bowing down to Mecca and all this stuff like, wow. What they don't realize is what those divers are doing, even though they're they're diving at a very high level, they come out to the shallow water every spring and they go through all of the rudimentary skills, the 21 basic skills that you learn in open water. They... These guys are doing 300, 400-foot dives, and they're coming out to your quarry so they can drop down and take their mask off and put it back on. And they do it every year. They refresh the basic fundamental skills. And it's not because they suck. For the most part, there are a couple, but for the most part, they're very, very skilled in their diving. But because they know that they need to refresh the basic fundamental skills, and they're out there, as stupid as it sounds, they're unclipping a bottle, setting it down, picking it up, putting it back on. They're taking their mask off, putting it back on. Taking a mask off, deploying a backup mask. They're going through air share drills. And these are guys that have thousands of dives and have spent thousands of dollars in training, have very high-level certifications, and they're out there doing these quote-unquote epic dives. But you see them at the quarry in the shallow water every spring, unscrewing themselves. And the biggest thing I could ever say to any diver is you need to rehearse those basic 21 skills that you learned in open water. And if you're not comfortable with taking your mask off underwater, you need to do it more often until you are comfortable. Because what's going to happen when somebody, you know, sees that spotted whatever whale it was from whatever movie and they hit you in the face with a fin and your mask gets knocked sideways. You can't panic and freak out. You just deal with it and you take your mask and you straighten back out, make sure your hood's out from under the skirt, clear the mask and you keep diving and you have to know how to manage your gas. And for the basic entry level diver, you're given some guidance, you know, don't run out. Most people don't drive down the road in their car until they run out of gas and then call somebody to come bring them some. It happens sometimes, but it shouldn't. Same thing when diving. And if you don't know how to plan your gas consumption because you're not at that level yet, you've got this this very simple thing that we developed in diving, you know, back in, I don't know, what was it, Mac? Late 60s, early 70s when we came out with the SPG? It had to be because I started out with a J-valve. Yeah, just don't put it in the wrong position in the beginning. Or have somebody but, pull it already. <laughs> yeah, or, or snag it on something. But we have this gauge that, let's keep it simple, let's just call it a contents gauge. Call it an empty and full gauge. Full yeah. is somewhere, depending on the tank you're diving, somewhere from 24 to 3,000 PSI. Zero is empty. The goal isn't to make sure you maximize that air fill. The goal is to make sure you don't die 
don't ever think that you have to get the most out of that tank. Just because you come back up and you still have a thousand PSI, who cares? You didn't run out of fuel. And underwater, the only true emergency is not having something to breathe. And in some realms, it's not having the correct thing to breathe. But in general, don't run out of air. And if you run out of air, honestly, you're a moron. Because if there's nothing else that you ever gathered out of your open water class, you can't breathe underwater without this stuff. And if you're diving with somebody, it's incumbent upon you and that person that you're diving with to communicate and make sure that you're both coming up when somebody is getting low. We don't dive until the one that has the best air consumption, which is probably the petite female you're diving with because females don't breathe. Not being racist, not being gender biased, whatever. Just females don't breathe. They just have much better air consumption rates. And if you're diving with a female and you're going to dive until they're out of, out of breathing gas, you're going to run out way before they do. Just like in Max story. Always come back up with leftover air. I can go on and on. I'm, I'm going to yeah. cut it off there. <laughs> I can soapbox right. it. I will throw one more thing in. And Mac okay. kind of threw this out there. Always, 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 when you hit the surface, positive buoyancy. Yeah. If, you, if you're in a situation where somebody's out of air and you get to the surface, orally inflate that BC or dump the dang weights. Yes. Well, and, and then the thing is, is uh, you know, how are you getting back on the boat when you're doing a boat dive? And this probably should be an episode all on its own. Uh, but, you know, this, this last dive when I got up on the boat, I almost started climbing the ladder without the regulator in my mouth. You know, and I, I was thinking, eh, I better not do that. Because if you get up and for some reason your hand slips and you fall back in, even with an inflated BC, you know, do you want to, you know, choke down a couple breaths of, uh, of water and get yourself in all sorts of hurt? Uh, always, always. If you're boat diving, the damn mask and the regulator don't come out until your fins are off and you are sitting on a bench. Things happen. If you get knocked off the ladder and there have been situations where, and I can quote one that actually happened. I think it was last year. It was either last year or year before over in Lake Michigan on the Chicago side where a very experienced diver fell back into the water, didn't have a reg in, didn't have a mask on. And they were never able to recover that, that regulator, the mask. Who cares? It's a crutch. That's only so you can see. But they were never able to recover that regulator, and they were recovered over an hour later. Keep that mask on. Keep that rag in your mouth until you're sitting on a bench. Now, the the exceptions I would have to that is if you get out of your gear and tether it off, because we've done that when we're doing Zodiacs. Yes. You get the gear off, tag it off, so you're clean of it. You know, you still got your yeah. fit, still got your mask, but you know what I'm saying? You're not going to drown now. Yeah. Well, at that and, point, you're not going to sink. Right. right. That's, that's yeah. the only difference that I would yeah. have with the the scenarios of right. when you get rid of your gear. And, and when you can guarantee your buoyancy, which is really the, the, the trick to that. So when I was diving with a BCD and a weight belt, what the order would be is if uh, when we're doing the Zodiac dive is we would have a tagline. Is that what they call a tagline or yep. just a, a or gear a granny line? line? 
granny line. So you do is you clip that off to one of the hooks on your BCD, and then you take off your weight belt. You still have your fins on. You take that weight belt and you pass it up to somebody in the boat, or sometimes you'd ease it over the edge so you didn't crack the fiberglass. Uh, but you you get that in the boat. So now you know that there is no way you're going to be more dense than the water around you. And then you can, uh, you know, it depends on how you had to get back in the boat. Because if, sometimes on a Zodiac, before we had the ladder on the Zodiac, you used to have to leave your fins on so that you could kick <laughs> to get up in the boat. Boy, yeah. uh, but I wish we had video then. You know, nice drone shot and, you know, video from another. Oh, boy, we missed some opportunity there. Uh, but you'd kick in. But what you do is you'd, you'd, once you got your weights out and, you know, and integrated, you could slip the weights out of the BCD or just slip out of the BCD. Uh, but if you do that in the BCDs, you want to make sure the BCD is buoyant because uh, there's been a couple times where I've helped the diver and his BCD, even with some air in it, was heavier, uh, uh, wasn't able to keep its lift going. Uh, and then you can, you know, climb and get on the boat because you're buoyant but but a very simple rule darren that that i always preach when you're on the surface you must be positively buoyant always and that can be as simple as putting air in the bc or get rid of weights we only carry those damn things because we need them to get down yep if you're if you're going to unkit to get into a zodiac get rid of your weights first now you're going to float and you know if things are going pear-shaped always remember if you're the one helping somebody get rid of their weights first because if you dump your weights and while you're dumping your weights you let go and they start to sink now you can't help them so always make sure that if you're helping somebody who's in trouble get them positively buoyant first then you but always positively buoyant on the surface whatever it takes whether it's inflating a BC or ditching those weights that we need to be able to submerge. Good point. And I'll stop because I could, I could keep going on and on. I know. We, we, we need to do a special on this. This is one of the, the items I've been thinking about is just doing some, call them like an evergreen shows where we don't cover any of the news and we, do just, we just do a topic and we just do it in depth to death. And then when somebody wants to refresh, they just go back to it. So. And no, and and I can actually give you anecdotes um, about people that have failed to maintain positive buoyancy on the surface. I mean, in the end, every one of these wrecks we always dive on. You know why they sink? Failure to maintain buoyancy. Failure to maintain buoyancy, and the same thing happens to divers. And I've pulled divers off the bottom long after they had air to breathe because of a failure to maintain buoyancy. And there's a couple of incidents I've been involved in that may have had a different outcome if things have been done differently. But in the end, if you maintain positive buoyancy on the surface, you're not going to sink. Just simple words, but a complex topic. Well, how about things to plug? We got anything we want to plug before we head on out of here? Support your local preserves, support your, your state historical agencies. Um, they're all suffering as much as everybody else through the COVID. Yeah, and and we're at the beginning stages of this COVID now. It may feel like we're getting to the end, but uh, we haven't seen the end of this yet. Uh, here in Michigan, the uh, uh, something that just many uh, the tax revenues, t- 
tend to not be there, and that's what funds many of these activities. So uh, preserves, uh, you know, the DNR, you know, usage fees are just not there, and that also extends to uh, business. You know, business, they're not going to make it up this year, but at least we want them to sustain themselves and exist so that they can be here next year. And most certainly local dive center, you may get a better deal on a regulator online, but when you have a problem with it, who are you going to turn to? The guy that helped you fit out all your gear and then you bought it online, and then you come to him. And support your local dive centers. Yep. You can't get air fills online. Mac, you have anything you want to plug? Nope. Pretty much covered it. Yeah. Have uh, something we haven't brought up in a while, uh, and COVID probably plays a factor in, but uh, was Taurus going to do any sort of presentation this year, or has that been canceled? I really can't say. I know that he has not been out and about like in yeah. and I have not seen anything scheduled for presentations because of the grouping aspect that you can't have. Yeah. yeah he has really been good. outspoken though. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've been tracking him pretty good. <laughs> yeah, he's he, he he's, he's out in a lot of ways. <laughs> spoken. Yeah. Uh, so Maybe okay, it's time to get Tarth back on. Yeah, we need to. We we need to get a bunch of people back on. I mean, that's something I've been bad at, and this damn internet's been kicking my butt. But hopefully, with everybody getting back to work, till the old the rural internets will start picking up. Well, a if they bit. quit YouTubing and Pornhubbing and whatnot, you'll oh, it's, yeah, you get your bandwidth back. Yep. Well, I think we are approaching that time of the show. Are you guys ready? Ever ready? Okay. I so might I've have got- to go get some whiskey. Well, you, you'll probably need a double. Uh, so what, what I what I do is is, is I've I've got three of them. So you know we'll work our way up. Well, we've got Father's Day uh, coming up. Are these so groaners? They're, they're, uh, they, these should be groaners. I'm I'm going to say that uh, I'll let you tell me, but I think they'll be grown worthy. So uh, we'll <laughs> we'll start with this first one. Uh, so you know this this is something that actually happened to me. I had a a dream that I was a muffler last night, but then I woke up exhausted. So that, that yeah. Not sure. Not sure I can even groan on that one, but yeah, okay. So I so, so he, relate. Yeah, so so here's here's the next one. Uh a woman is on trial for beating her husband to death with his guitar collection. The judge says first offender? She says, No, first a Gibson, then offender. I'm seeing. I'm, ha- I'm going to have to reach out to the land below for some <laughs> <joke>. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So, so here's the. This is the finale. So the, the those two were just kind of, you know, setting the the appetite for the joke. So, four men are in a hospital waiting room because their wives are having babies. A nurse goes up to the first guy and says, "Congratulations, you're a father of twins." Well, that's odd," says the man. "I work for the Minnesota Twins." The nurse says to the second guy, congratulations, your father triplets. He says, well, that's weird. Answers the second man, I work for 3M Company. The nurse tells the third man, congratulations, your father quadruplets. He says, that's strange. I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. The last man is groaning and banging his head on the wall. What's wrong, the other asks. I work for 7-Up. Okay, that was much better. 
I'm going to have to reach down to the down under. <laughs> you, you know the joke source I speak of. Yes, I do. Yeah, he will. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he'll have something. He's, I, I, I haven't Rod's heard been from busy. him. He's, he's been busy. He's, yeah. He, he's always got stuff to do, but uh, we may have to call him out of his uh, whatever he's working on just to. to we'll have to because stuff. he has some dang hilarious jokes. <laughs> Some of the better ones are the ones you can't even bring. Well, the, those, well, the, those That's personally give me plenty of satisfaction. To, yeah, after Craig leaves, you talk about that. <laughs> yeah, Craig, once once Craig's gotten out of the room, then we turn those on. And for those who don't know, Craig is the uh, the recording software. Not not we do have a listener named Craig, but it's a different yeah. one. Uh, so until next time, go out there and get wet and stay safe and don't run out of breathing gas. Oops, if I can spell Craig. D-R. Oh, yeah, some diehards still there. <laughs>